Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is David Yosefan, Peter Canisius S.J., Professor of Law at Santa Clara Law School. We will discuss his article, Agent Correction, Chastisement, Wellness, and Personal Ethics, which is published in the Florida State University Law Review. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Brian. I love the podcast, and I'm thrilled to be here. Great. I'm I'm delighted to have you on because I really enjoyed reading this paper. I found it really thoughtful and and provocative. And I understand that it's kind of part of a larger project that you've been working on and continue to work on. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the larger project and situate this particular article in the context of that project. Brian, the project is interested in looking to fiduciary discourses as a resource of personal vitality. It's my conjecture that we can find within fiduciary law and and fiduciary doctrines a source of personal vitality that can fill the vacuum that is left by the collapse of other sources of meaning that were once reliable but are now suspect. Politics is dispiriting. Religions are no longer believable. The culture all around is a mess. The storm of nihilism, the storm of doubt, rages all around us. I submit that fiduciary discourses, fiduciary scriptures provide a port in that storm. That we can look to the ambitions of excellence that are described in fiduciary ways of being as a resource to pursue meaning in our personal lives and transcend the limitations that we encounter left to our own devices or those other collapsing institutions that once provided some direction for us. And so I look to the fiduciary duty of care that central injunction as it manifests in corporate law, the injunction to go, the injunction to manage the corporation. Delaware corporate law says the business and affairs of a corporation shall be managed by a board of directors. That's an empowering conceit, the central instruction to go. That is the first instruction of a vital existential project, a vital pursuit of a worthy sentiment of being. Woe unto the individual who, like Bartleby the Scrivener, prefers not to. They suffer what Bob Dylan called the pain of idleness. The fiduciary injunction to go, the duty of care's instruction to get after it, can be a powerful resource for structuring and thinking about our own ambition for personal excellence, renewal, and growth. The duty of loyalty, the instruction to renounce thought of the self. It can be a powerful personal ethical instruction. And here we could take this in in multiple directions, but I really mean that with the duty of loyalty as it manifests again in corporate law discourse, the director is instructed to always be on guard against patronizing their own personal biases against their own personal interests, be on guard against their own bad faith. And that can be a powerful 
instruction, a, a powerful guide to the individual as they undertake their own life projects. That we have to re- we have to be on guard against motivated reasoning. We have to be in, on guard against self-interest that detracts us from our own intentions, from the, our own projects that we meant to be pursuing. The duty of care, the duty of loyalty. I look again now to the to the business judgment rule. Okay, a a, a, a fundamental doctrine within corporate law. Which is really uh, which, which says to the to the corporate board, you must manage the board, but we defer to you entirely um, in terms of um, how you want to do it, what you want, how, how you want to pursue the work of the corporation, and the substance of it is entirely up to the board. And I think again, for our time in our contemporary idiom, that's a powerful ethical conceit as well. That it it it. it it instructs the it it um, it liberates the individual from conformity, from a sense of of having to go along with the usual way of doing things, but instead find out for themselves what is the best way of being themselves, what is the best way of pursuing their talents, what is the best way of manifesting their excellence. The business judgment rule in, in, instructs us to that liberty and the, and thus the, the business judgment rule can be a kind of font of creativity at the same time the business judgment rule to, to gain business judgment rule protection the board has to be informed has to deliberate so this isn't just nonconformity for nonconformity's sake it's rather uh, an instruction that you can and you ought to do your own thing, but you have to be engaged with other people first. You have to listen to other people. You have to be truly in good faith available to what others think you ought to do. What is the right thing to do? What's the best thing to do? You have to, in good faith, be attentive to it. And then you decide what's best for yourself. That's, a again, a, a powerful, elegant instruction to an existential project that can that can vitalize a person's pursuit of their own personal ambitions and their own personal life right and i submit that this that these frameworks of of fiduciary conceptions are um, salient they're vital and they can they provide some access to uh, a pursuit of a uh, of a sentiment of being in the absence of other alternatives in our cultural moment. That's the broader project, but now we reach the, the problem of aging correction, okay? And so, so I submit that there is great vitality available to the agent or to the fiduciary in the course of the principal-agent relationship. However, we know from, again, from corporate law discourses and from ancient, really, agency discourses that the fundamental problem of corporate law or agency law is getting the agent to behave in that way. So perhaps there is uh, secret profits, as I describe it, secret ethical profits available to the fiduciary in the course of the principal-agent relationship, or anyway, in a conception, in a self-conception that that looks to structure the self or regard the self in fiduciary terms, right? that there is vitality available there, but the law tells us and legal theory tells us that accessing that vitality is actually quite difficult because the agent will tend to slack. The agent will tend not to um, obey the instructions of the of the fiduciary relationship, but will instead be insubordinate 
or take advantage of the uh, of the agency to pursue their own interests rather than the interests of the agency itself. And so the problem for my project, which I broadly call the fiduciary self, the problem for my project is if it's true that there is um, vital ethical instruction or existential opportunity in the principal agent conception, well, then how do we get ourselves to do it? How do we get ourselves to take advantage of it, given the agency problem and our propensity to slack? you know, our propensity to be insubordinate, which was the problem to begin with, you know, or certainly a problem that's recognized in um, in academic uh, and long, longstanding commentary on the agency relationship. In um, contemporary, uh, contemporary um, framing of the agency problem really looks to two principal solutions to the agency problem, and that is imposing law, um, uh, uh, legal liability on the agent if they are uh, careless or disloyal, or economic arrangements incentivizing the agent, uh, uh, economic arrangements that endeavor to better align the interests of uh, the interests of the principal and agent, for example, by giving the, uh, the agent a financial stake in the principal's business, okay? In this paper, I'm trying to uh, to resurrect and examine a third form, a third kind of approach that historically was available as a way of thinking about solving the agency problem that I think might, in in a revised fashion, be useful uh, for my project of the fiduciary self, and that is the idea of agent correction. What I really like about your framing of the bigger picture project as well as the way you situate this article within it is this kind of aspirational way of thinking about the fiduciary relationship especially because i feel like discourse in that space has become so cynical about the relationship between the principal and the agent and thought of it in almost kind of punitive terms in terms of how do we how do we enforce the duties rather than how do we encourage people to aspire to and achieve those duties and i i think the the, the reversal of the framing is really is really helpful. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the concept of agent correction sort of what that means or meant and what the kind of historical trajectory of that approach to the principal agent relationship and to fiduciary duty really was. Absolutely. Let me first address the issue of the, of the kind of routine cynicism um, about the, the nature of the principal agent relationship. And I want to emphasize that, that this project um, is is in no way intended to vindicate prevailing corporate governance law or prevail uh, or the prevailing distributions of 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 power wealth you know and, and the and the um uh and the power relationships that often describe principal agent affairs okay um in in other work i've been a stern critic of shareholder primacy and and i remain as such right my I, my ambition for this project is to submit that the legal that the ideas themselves, the legal imagination of the principal agent relationship, the legal imagination of fiduciary discourses, discourses provide an independent realm 
in which we can excavate ideas about identity and relationships and our own relationships to ourselves. You know, that the, that, that the legal imagination can, can function in, in a way that is, that is disconnected in useful ways from the reality of the lived experience or the institutional operations that they dictate, you know, in the economy or in formal institutional design. And this is one of the, I, I think, promises of legal theory is the ability to identify the imaginative space or the creative space that legal thinking um, inaugurates, you know, distinct from the ways in which these doctrines operate in the trenches. Right. Um, so now to, 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 to get into the idea of agent correction. Oh, so I find that the, that the idea of, of simply, um, uh, uh, the, of, of aligning principal agent incentives or, or providing legal liability for care and disloyalty are really inadequate to this idea of using fiduciary, um, concepts to embolden a self-conceit. But I stumble in the historical record in my course of study in agency relationships on this older idea of agent correction, you know, this early modern um, way of approaching the agency problem. We find it in Blackstone. We find it in early modern discussions of the common law of master-servant relationships in which the master was authorized to correct the agent when they fell prey to the agency problem, when the, when the agent was slacking or the agent was insubordinate, the master was entitled to and indeed instructed to correct the agent. Now, it, 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 it's, it's shocking and it, it ought to shock the contemporary moral conscience. And the fact that it shocks the, the contemporary moral conscience is evidence of our moral evolution you know, as a species, as a society. What they meant by agent correction was they called it chastisement and it meant physical hitting. The master would physically strike, you know, was authorized to physically strike the agent to correct their disposition. Right. And there was a, a, a robust um, uh, black letter, you know, that built up around the doctrine of of correction, which required moderation and talked about the ways in which it could be done and could not be done and what the purposes of it could be and could not be. But this, this was regarded as a distinct approach to, um, to solving the agency problem within the master servant relationship. So how did it work in, in practice? How did it kind of change over time and why was the concept of agent correction seemingly extirpated, at least from legal language, if not necessarily from the sort of background realities of what we try to do or the resources we try to develop in thinking about fiduciary relationships? So the, the, the history of chastisement and its demise is fascinating, and I'm really relying on other scholar, you know, great scholarly work which you find cited in the article. But you know, uh, what ch- chastisement prevailed in the principal agent relationship or the master servant relationship at a time where where that relationship was not an at will relationship. You know that it was that the the principal agent master servant relationship was 
typically prescribed for a distinct period of time, a year or a quarter, you know, um, typically. And those relationships, it was hard to to sever the contract, hard to sever, sever the relationship once it had been established. It was hard for the master to get out of it. It was hard for the servant to get out of it. So, um, so one of the reasons that chastisement or correction was was cultivated in the legal imagination at that time and uh, became actualized as a practice was a way of enforcing the labor contract or enforcing the master servant uh uh relationship and and curbing insubordination or negligence or slacking in um in, in a context in which outright dismissal was uh, not real was was not really an option right um and the, the the end of chastisement emer- it coincides really with the emergence of the at will rule in uh, in the american context and principles begin to find it um and a, a simpler and easier a more powerful mechanism of disciplining the agent is the constant threat of ouster um it can operate more effectively than the occasional threat of chastisement. Of course, there are, there's other um, other reasons that contribute to the end of servant chastisement or, or servant correction, including an emergent humanitarianism, including an emergent class consciousness, which among the uh, agent class, among the working class, among the servant class, which rejected corporal punishment as to them. And then a very crucial element to the story, as I describe in the paper, is the intensification of um, of slave whipping in the United States. And I think it's it's a fascinating and interesting history to recognize that you know, the whip was not initially the the whip was not initially exclusively associated with the master slave relationship was really but was an indicia of the master servant relationship more generally of which in some ways the legal imagination regarded the master slave relationship as a subcategory of the master servant relationship but as american slavery intensified in the early 19th century as the financialization of the american slave trade drove the, uh, the ever more um, in, uh, urgent imperative to expropriate the next bloody dollar out of the master-slave relationship. Slave whipping got much worse in the American South. And as whipping intensified against American slaves, then Amer- uh, free people, American uh, servants, free people came to reject ever more aggressively any kind of physical chastisement as it came to be more deeply associated with slavery. So as as chastisement or, or uh, physical whipping intensified against slaves, that actually causes in some ways um, the end of the practice as against free people. So it seems that there's so many reasons why agent correction was a historical practice that ultimately was rejected along with many other practices we find abhorrent today, but you find a sort of echo Mm -hmm. of agent correction in corporate practices, I guess, of, of today Um, in some sense, bringing some kernel of something potentially valuable or positive from that 
the role that that concept played, if not the actual practice itself. And in some ways, maybe changing it in ways that are themselves concerning or problematic. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that. And specifically, you referenced the kind of the concept of wellness and its development and what that means in terms of the fiduciary relationship. Right. So what I'm trying to, as I look at the history of agent correction and the way that that idea operated in the legal imagination of the early modern period, I identify in that conceit really two distinct elements of correction, which weren't always kept, which weren't always clear, I think, in their day. But retrospectively, analyzing what they were doing and what they were thinking and understanding their writing, we can really understand that there are two crucial aspects of correction. One is correction, you know, the the state of being in which the uh, the agent's disposition is um, is altered or aligned or approached in such a way that the agent is ready for uh, the the agency relationship, ready to go. You know, as the fiduciary instruction says, ready to go loyally, ready to exercise judgment properly. You know, um, and this is, you know, this isn't about really aligning the agent. This isn't really about patronizing the agent's pre-existing preferences in any kind of rank way, but is rather about um, about cultivating a kind of well, a kind of well-being, a kind of excellence, a kind of balance within the agent. That's correction. You know, and the early modern imagination did have that feature, but it couldn't see it clearly, I think, because it conflated it with its evil means of physical beating, you know, and the the, the malign, hard, malignant, vicious practice of physical chastisement, you know, I think um, blinded in some way the early modern period to the depth of its own conceit of agent correction. No. Now that we have stamped out the idiot practice of physical chastisement, you know, we might look back on that um, that idea, you know, and resurrect from it, or or um, uh, or or, or, or t- sack take take from it, take from those still smoldering embers some of the some of what might actually be a promising idea. And that is the, uh, the idea of agent correction. You know, and if, and if we can recognize it as a distinct idea, then I think we can identify in our own contemporary practices, actually, that corporations are engaged in a kind of age, uh, uh, an approach to solving the agency problem that might properly or, or usefully be understood as agent correction. That it's not really about, about, um, about imposing legal liability for negligence or disloyalty. It's not really about incentivizing um, agent uh, uh, incentivizing agents as a way of diminishing the agency problem by patronizing pre-existing preferences or, or giving you know financializing uh, um, uh, the agent's incentive, but is rather concerned instead with cultivating within the agent or within the worker um, an excellence, a, a a vitality, a nourishment, you know, a, a balance that makes the agent more efficacious for themselves and in the course of the agency. And I'm referring here to well to the wellness movement in corporate operations and certainly in other organizational affairs as well. 
but the imp- the imperative uh the interest that the current corporation has in cultivating wellness within the agent might be regarded as um resuscitating or echoing that ancient practice of agent correction albeit in a softer kinder you know um a more positive idiom of wellness and i i speak here of course i'm talking about um i'm talking about f- uh physical fitness I'm talking about nutrition, talking about ergonomic furniture and electronics, you know, um, uh, but even even spiritual endeavor um, and spiritual focus, yoga, meditation, you know, um, all of which are uh, are are introduced in the contemporary workplace as a way of cultivating wellness within the agent, as a way of correcting the agent and making them more available to the agency relationship. Now, of course, you know, you spoke earlier of the of the cynicism as these concepts actually are operationalized and nobody's more suspicious of them than me. You know, I, I, uh, we must recognize this, the, 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 the corporatization of the wellness movement as a, as, as just another way in which corporate capitalism seizes organic social movements that might otherwise dislodge its authority or, or question its fundamental premises. Instead, Corporate power incorporates those uh, potentially disruptive mechanisms into its own operations and turns it into just another profit maximizing resource. And undoubtedly, we see that with the wellness movement, you know, and we can recognize the ways in which wellness operates in the corporation as an exploitative um, device, you know, in, in that that um, that inter- that that disrupts um, the privacy of the agent and their families. You know, um, and that seeks to to reach deep within the agent into their very heart, into their very spirit um, to operationalize the, the agent more efficaciously on behalf of the corporation. We recognize that. And that is to be identified and repudiated from the perspective of corporate analysis theory and institutional design. Right? But again, I am trying now to identify the emergence of wellness as a mode of correction, which is in um, which divorced from its institutional function, provides a a, a, a re-entry into the idea of agent correction, because wellness, after all, is a uh, is a vital, a beautiful, vitalizing um, discipline, technology. You know, that we ought to, when we when we provide ourselves proper nutrition, when we rest, when we meditate, when we practice yoga, when we're spiritually engaged, when we're um, engaged in community, these are vitalizing impulses that uh, that make us more available to that structure of the fiduciary self to which I was alluding to earlier. You know, that that when that when we deploy the the. The, the mechanisms of wellness on ourselves and correct our servant selves, then we may be more available um, to take advantage of the secret profits of the principal agent relationship. Now, th- th- that that is in that that is in a uh, uh, that again, that is exploiting and, de- and developing and cultivating an idea that I believe is can be can be discovered in a kind of theoretical exegesis by studying agency law and its its contemporary manifestations. 
We use it to inform ourselves, to vitalize ourselves and empower ourselves. And then we can turn back to those institutional designs and institutional operations. You know, if an, if an individual is um, finds meaning in their own life and finds vitality in their own life, then they can become critically engaged. They can become socially and uh, politically engaged and perhaps um, make, you know, uh, 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 dedicate themselves to the reform of those very institutional arrangements that inspired the uh, the transformative self-conception. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that it's it's easy to let the sort of cynicism with which we approach a lot of corporate governance topics today kind of infect our assessment of the legitimacy and the uh, candor with which wellness programs are administrated. But what I really like about the, the project that you're engaged in is sort of providing tools for thinking about wellness, not as an instrumental tool to benefit the company, but rather as a tool for a true tool for self-actualization of the agent him or herself in becoming a the kind of person they aspire to be. Yes, and 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 just as the just as the master servant relationship in the early modern period, the the that actual relationship and the legal design that sanctifies that relationship is in some crucial sense an expression of power, you know, and formalizes existing relations of power and um and and um and you know and um diminishes resistance to those relationships of power by uh, calling it the law you know or the the by establishing the rule of law as a way of sanctifying those legal relationships and true in the contemporary uh context you know the the principal agent relationship the the structure of our corporations the shareholder primacy norm you know these these are um this is a legal this is a a, a legal design that sanctifies um existing relations of power and privilege okay but but uh, again my um the the my project here my interest here is in recognizing that the the very establishment of that rule of law design as a way of embodying existing uh, relations of distributions of power and privilege the use of the law as a as a way of sanctifying those relations of power and privilege that comes at a cost to the powerful you know that that is it's the law the rule of law is there operating as a kind of agent to the powerful and there is a slack in that agency by establishing the master servant legal relationship, saying it's the law that establishes the right of correction. It's the law that establishes the master servant. It's the law that establishes shareholder primacy. Well, the law now exists. You know, the law now exists as an independent imaginative space, as an independent discursive opportunity as it has its now its own words, its own thinkers, its own actors. And now with even if, you know, we might in some sense say that 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 legal design is established uh, cynically, you know, is established cynically to sanctify those relations of power. Once established, you know, it can be exploited in creative ways 
that can um, that that can that can cultivate ideas um, and energy that can be redeployed against that existing distri- distribution of power. Right? And so that's what I'm after in this idea of the fiduciary self, and the uh, and and trying to cultivate from the uh, make use of in the idea of of contemporary wellness as it relates to that as it relates to that idea. Let me say also that, you know, that there's a lot of work going on in, in, in corporate wellness, you know, like there, there are a lot of people employed. There's a lot of things written. There are a lot of projects that are uh, experimented with. So in some ways, you know, some of the most act, even though it is undoubtedly uh, expropriative, exploitative, invasive in many ways, there are also ideas that are developed and uh, technologies that are cultivated, people are exposed to ideas. You know, in some ways, the corporate wellness um, uh, a project, you know, the, um, uh, can serve as an incubator for ideas of wellness that um, that can en- enliven those ideas, keep them alive, spread them to other people in in ways that um, that wouldn't otherwise be available. In, in similar ways to the. Uh, it, it, the, uh, in, in similar ways, the idea of correction, you know, it, as correcting oneself was perhaps cultivated, developed in the discourse of the early modern master-servant relationship in ways that otherwise wouldn't have been available uh, so readily to, to the human imagination. Well, David, thanks so much for coming on the show to share this paper and to situate it in the broader project that that you've discussed i hope listeners will check out this article and and others and maybe you can come back on the show again in the future to talk about another piece in this big picture puzzle i i would be thrilled to do it brian and i'm so grateful to you for the opportunity Mm-hmm. <laughs>